0: M S W media Big shout out today to Helix Sleep. Take their 2-minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. In honor of Labor Day, Helix is offering 25% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners. Go to helixsleep.com/dailybeans and use code HELIXPARTNER25. Beans beans. Daily beans, daily, beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, September 4th, 2023. Today, Clarence Thomas has finally updated his financial disclosure forms. A Trump campaign aide told Capitol police officers to go hang themselves during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. After crying in front of Judge Kelly at sentencing, a proud boy yelled, Trump won as he left the courthouse. Governor Brian Kemp has assembled a commission to determine whether a fake Trump elector should be suspended from the state Senate. A judge has rejected Ron DeSantis' congressional map for diluting the black vote. Trump's true social could become insolvent this week. And, Missouri residents, you have access to free Plan B. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody. Uh, Dana's out today. I know, I know, I promised patrons over the weekend bonus episode that she'd be back today, but some last-minute travel came up. She'll be traveling tomorrow. She'll be back Tuesday. Uh, But later in the show, I will be talking with the co-founder of Run for Something. You can check them out at runforsomething.net. Her name is Amanda Littman, and uh, we're going to have a great discussion about the work that they're doing. And a patron, Jen, wanted me to alert residents of Missouri that you have access to Free Plan B, and we will have a link in the show notes for you. So I just wanted to put that information out there. All right, we have a lot of news to get to today, so let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, first up from Ryan Riley and Barnes at NBC, Dominic Pozzola, a proud boy who smashed a Capitol window with a stolen police riot shield, was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison on Friday. Pizzola was the only one of the five defendants of the Proud Boys who was not convicted of seditious conspiracy. Prosecutors sought 20 years for him. They got 10. Judge Kelly has been coming in at about half the recommended sentencing. Now, Ethan Nordine, the former president of the Seattle Proud Boys chapter and one of Pozzola's co-defendants, was sentenced to 18 years in prison later Friday, tying the record for the longest sentence to date with Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes, who, like Nordine and other Proud Boys, was found guilty of seditious conspiracy. Prosecutors sought 27 years in prison for Nordine, who was also convicted on five other felony charges earlier this year. Speaking to the court before being sentenced, Nordeen apologized for not being more responsible as a leader of the men he commanded on January 6th and said, there's no excuse for what I did. Quote, no matter how we all try to individually slice January 6th, we must conclude it was a complete and utter tragedy. That's what Nordeen said. And he went on to say, it's my humble opinion that there is no rally or political protest that should ever hold value over human life. U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly, who's a Trump appointee, handed down Pozzola and Nordine's sentences. On Thursday, he gave two other Proud Boys prison terms of about half of what prosecutors sought. Joe Biggs, a former InfoWars correspondent, was sentenced to 17 years on Thursday. And Zach Rail, a Philadelphia Proud Boy, was found to have peppered sprayed officers he got 15 years. Pozzola took the stand in his own defense at a trial in April, calling the charges against him fake. And bringing up conspiracy theories about Ray Epps, we all know January 6th participant, you know, is not a federal agent. Extensive video evidence documented Pizzola's actions at the Capitol on January 6th, including a video he filmed inside after leading the breach. He was found guilty of assaulting, resisting, or impeding certain officers, as well as stealing the police shield and other charges this past May. Quote, "Knew we could take this motherfucker over if we just tried hard enough," that was what he said in his own January 6th video. Prosecutors said he acted as a soldier in a civil war he had envisioned. It boggles my mind, Kelly said, of Pozzola's actions during the riot, including smashing the window out and filming a video of himself taking a victory smoke in the Capitol crypt. During Friday's hearing, Pozzola’s longtime partner, Lisa McGee, reiterated what she said on the stand at trial, that Pozzola was a fucking idiot. She said her daughters have had to suffer. And had been bullied at home due to their father's actions. McGee, who testified that Pozzola was getting drunk and watching Fox News before January 6th, said she'd already canceled cable news at their home. Quote, I truly believe if he could go back and change that day, that he would. Now, McGee and Pozzola's mother both spoke before the court through tears, and Pozzola could be seen holding his head in his hands, wiping away tears. He was bawling while they spoke. His 19 year old daughter remained stoic during her statement telling Kelly about the positive impact her father has had on her life. I am everything good that my father has done that you have not seen, she said. Prior to his sentencing, Pozzolla told the judge, I stand before you today as a changed and humble man. I have never denied what I did on January 6th. This was the worst, most regrettable decision in my life. I am truly sorry, he said, promising he would never again do anything that would land him in a courtroom. But while being let out of the courtroom after Kelly had departed, Pazola turned toward the audience, raised one fist and shouted, Trump won. Another January 6th participant, Danny Rodriguez, also yelled Trump won after he was sentenced to 12 and a half years in June for driving a stun gun into former Washington, D.C. police officer Michael Fanone's neck. And from Jonathan Allen and Ryan Riley at NBC, another story of a wonderful person that was at the January 6th riot. The number two official in New Hampshire on Donald Trump's presidential campaign told police to kill themselves in an expletive written January 6 video shot close to the Capitol. That's according to a recording posted this month by an ex account at a Twitter account associated with sedition hunters. That's a group of online sleuths who've helped authorities identify hundreds of people present that day. Quote, if you're a police officer and you're going to abide by unconstitutional bullshit, I want you to do me a favor right now and go hang yourself because you're a piece of shit. That's Dylan Quattrucci, the deputy state director of Trump's campaign in New Hampshire. And that's what he says on the video. Go fuck yourself. Four officers who responded to the riot on January 6th later died by suicide. The Justice Department determined this month that one of the officers, Jeffrey Smith, died in the line of duty as part of the process. And that awards the survivor benefits to his widow. Two people who are familiar with Quattrucci confirmed to NBC News that the man in the video is him. The video shows him wearing the same outfit he was wearing in tweets that he posted that day that were first surfaced by WMUR-TV of Manchester. While the Capitol is in the background behind him, there is no evidence that he entered the building. U.S. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, who testified in October at the Oath seditious conspiracy trial, praised his former colleagues on Thursday and called Quattrucci a failure. Quote, I hope Dylan Quattrucci will take the time to comprehend that four members of Capitol Police and Metropolitan Police Department did die via suicide and that the efforts to stop the certification of duly elected President Biden failed in part because of their brave heroics. You are a failure. Those men will be remembered for service to their country and you will be remembered as the guy in the cheap suit during a failed insurrection. And from Patanzi at the Bradenton Herald, I love these local news outlets. A state judge struck down North Florida's congressional district Saturday, rebuffing Governor Ron DeSantis' open defiance of anti-gerrymandering protections, finding the governor's map illegally reduced black voters' electoral power. DeSantis had wagered that the state's Fair District's Amendment against the U.S. Constitution, arguing mandatory protections for black voters, violated the Equal Protections Clause. Second Judicial Circuit Judge Lee Marsh, J. Lee Marsh, flatly rejected that gamble, rendering a decision that could reverberate from the halls of Tallahassee to the streets of Jacksonville, paving the way for a new Democratic district where Jacksonville's black voters have more influence. Marsh refused to bite on DeSantis' claim that the state's fair district's amendment violated the Constitution, saying DeSantis's secretary of state and the legislature didn't even have standing to make such an argument. Marsh's ruling was limited to North Florida after plaintiffs abandoned claims that other districts also violated the state constitution. The ruling could restore a district similar to the one the Florida Supreme Court ordered last decade that stretched from Jacksonville to Tallahassee and Gadsden County. That district previously elected U.S. Rep. Al Lawson, a Democrat. A joint agreement between the states and plaintiffs should ensure a quicker than normal appeals process and potentially allow a new map before 2024. The state must file notice of appeal by Monday. Both parties intend to request that Florida Supreme Court hear the case directly, skipping the usual step of going through the lower appellate court. They will also propose a schedule to allow the state's highest court to decide by December 31st. Now, typically, an appeal pauses trial court rulings, but thanks to a joint agreement made last month, the state has committed to requesting the court lift that automatic hold. That would allow the court to proceed with a remedial process for a new map. While the state appeals the court's decision, the legislature will get a first chance at drawing a new map, which the plaintiffs could challenge. If the legislature doesn't draw a new map, both sides agreed to accept a district that spans from Duval to Gadsden, similar to the legislature's initial proposal. Last year, DeSantis rejected the legislature's proposal, proposed congressional plans and drew his own. Right. So we revert back to that one if they don't make a new one, the one that he turned down. His version removed a district that would have given black voters in Jacksonville a better chance to elect their preferred candidates, replacing it with whiter, more Republican districts. DeSantis conceded his map did not meet the state's non-diminishment standard, which mandates that new districts must not undermine the voting power of racial minorities. He admitted to that. Now, if the Florida Supreme Court sides with DeSantis, it could have national implications. It means the court, a majority of whom DeSantis has appointed, would go further than the U.S. Supreme Court has in advancing a legal argument pushed by many conservatives, that it's inherently wrong to take race into account, even if it's done to preserve the political voice of black voters. It's the old reverse racism argument. Desantis's veto of the initial map and the GOP-controlled legislature's decision to adopt his new one sparked a historic protest in Florida in the House, where reps Angie Nixon, a Democrat of Jacksonville, and Traveris McCurdy, a Democrat in Orlando, led a sit-in to disrupt the proceedings. After that protest, DeSantis vetoed all of Nixon's appropriations in the current budget and legislative leadership put her in an office in the basement in the Florida Capitol. And from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Governor Brian Kemp appointed a three-member panel to assess whether a Georgia legislator who served as a fake elector should be suspended after he was charged as part of what prosecutors call a vast criminal enterprise to overturn Trump's 2020 defeat. The governor on Friday tapped Attorney General Chris Carr, House Majority Leader Chuck F. Stration, and Senate Majority Leader Steve Gooch to review State Senator Sean Still's case. Still and the three panelists are Republicans. They all are. So's Kemp. We know that. Now, Sean Still is one of the 19 defendants in the indictment brought by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis that alleges. Trump led an illegal scheme to reverse Biden's victory. Still was one of the 16 Republican electors who convened to cast their ballots for Trump in December of 2020, even as the state's official Democratic electors met to cast their ballots for Biden. He later won a Senate seat in 2022. Now, the indictment charges that Still and two other fake electors, former state GOP chair David Schaefer and Kathy Latham, charge them of impersonating public officers, forgery, false statements, and attempting to file false documents in connection with fake electors. Each has said they did nothing wrong. All three have asked for their cases to be removed to federal court, arguing that because they were contingent electors, they are somehow federal officers. Under Georgia law, still could be suspended from the Senate while the case is pending. The commission is required to provide a speedy hearing under state law and produce a written report within 14 days. If the commission determines the indictment relates to or adversely affects the administration of Still's office and the public is adversely affected, Kemp is mandated by state law to suspend the public official immediately. Still's indictment has added to a fraught environment in the state Senate where normally congenial GOP colleagues have been engaged in a bitter back and forth over efforts to punish Fannie Willis for bringing the charges. So who thinks these three Republicans will suspend this one Republican? They might. I mean, the majority, it's not like they have a slim, slender majority there. So we'll see what happens. And from Harwell at The Washington Post, when former President Donald Trump's media startup announced in October 21 that it planned to merge with Miami-based company called Digital World Acquisition, which I will refer to DWAC from now on, the deal was an instant stock market hit. With the $300 million digital world had already raised from investors, Trump Media and Technology Group, creator of Truth Social, pledged then that the merger would create a tech titan worth $875 million at the start and, depending on the stock's performance, could be worth up to $1.7 billion later on. All they needed for the merger to close was that thing, was a process that Digital World, in a July 2021 preliminary prospectus, estimated would happen within 12 to 18 months. They just needed the merger to close. Quote, everyone asks me why doesn't someone stand up to big tech? Well, we will be soon. That's what Trump said in a media statement that month. Now, almost two years later, the deal faces what could be a catastrophic threat. With the merger stalled for months, Digital World is fast approaching a September 8th deadline for the merger to close and has scheduled a shareholder meeting for Tuesday in hopes of getting enough votes to extend the deadline another year. Now, if the vote fails, Digital World will be required by law to liquidate and return $300 million to its shareholders, leaving Trump's company with nothing, nothing from the transaction. Now, for Digital World, that would signal the ultimate financial fall from grace for a special purpose acquisition company or SPAC, that turned its proximity to the former president into what was one of the stock market's hottest trades. Its share price peaked in the first hours at 175 per share. It's down to about $14 now. Digital World's efforts to merge with Trump media have been troubled from the start, beset by allegations, it began its conversations with the former president's company before they were permitted to, under SPAC rules. Then, in the past year, its issues became more pronounced. Its chief executive was terminated by the board. A former board member was arrested on charges of insider trading, and the company agreed to pay an $18 million settlement to resolve charges that it had misled investors and given false information to the SEC. Trump media has blamed the SEC for the deal's troubles, saying in a statement last year that the agency had worked to sabotage the merger for political reasons with a bureaucratic black hole of inaction. Okay, But the SEC, which requires SPACs to meet disclosure requirements and other closing conditions before permitting a merger— said in July that it had investigated Digital World and found it had made material misrepresentations to investors. They lied to investors. And now we hear that potentially $8 million of money that infused to to hold this thing up probably came from foreign bad actors. In filings dating back to its September 2021 IPO, Digital World executives said they had not participated in merger discussions with any companies, and that turned out to be a lie. In agreeing to pay the $18 million settlement over its lies, if the merger closes, Digital World said it would revise its registration statement, known as a Form S-4, to correct the inaccuracies. The company has yet to resubmit that revised document. In a separate filing, Digital World said it was also not ready to file two required quarterly financial reports covering the first half of this year, saying it couldn't complete them in time without unreasonable effort or expense. It has sparred with its former auditors in SEC filings and letters over who's to blame for the missing information. Now, Digital World also is late in filing two required quarterly financial reports with Nasdaq Stock Exchange, (laughs) adding that Nasdaq has given the company until November to file the reports or they'll be delisted. Now, Truth Social has attracted a relatively meager following. Though Trump media projected in 2021 investor presentations that it would have 41 million total users by the end of the year, usage estimates from SimilarWeb, that's a data firm that analyzes web traffic, suggests it's a long way from reaching 41 million users. According to SimilarWeb's estimates, about 500,000 monthly active users in the United States visit Truth Social via Apple and Android in July, down from 600,000 in June. You, mmm. That's nowhere near 41 million. Similar Web's estimates of how many people in the U.S. visited Truth Social in July from either desktop, computer, or their phone's web browser totaled just over a million, down nearly 20% since June. Now, there is some overlap given that users can access the site on both their desktop and their phone. Three times as many unique visitors in July visited the websites of the Old Farmer's Almanac and the Denver Gazette. (laughs) <laughs> Three times as many people went to the old farmer's almanac than Truth Social. And from Jordan Rubin at MSNBC, in what should have been an unremarkable act by a government worker, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas filed his required annual financial disclosure form. Of course, what makes the filing noteworthy is that it comes after investigative reporting by ProPublica, revealing years of lavish, undisclosed largesse to Thomas from GOP billionaire Harlan Crow. Even still, Thomas's lawyer put out a pouty statement in connection with the disclosure that paints the life tenure justice as the victim of political bloodsport for people having the gall to question his questionable behavior. Fellow Republican appointee Sam Alito, who has come under scrutiny himself for undisclosed private jet travel from a conservative billionaire, has also filed his disclosure after receiving a 90-day extension. Quote, the financial disclosure process should never be weaponized against any justice simply because any organization or anyone disagrees with the way a justice thinks, writes or votes. Wow. That's part of the lengthy statement on Thomas's behalf. That's true enough as far as axioms go. But it doesn't do anything to address the justice's case. One could just as easily point out the opposite, that no one should ever defend a justice's unethical behavior simply because they agree with the way the justice thinks, writes, or votes. But that, too, wouldn't answer the question of whether Thomas has violated the law by failing to disclose past benefits from Crow. That's the mega donor. That's an open question that still needs official resolution and, if necessary, legal consequences. In the meantime, it's worth emphasizing that Thomas's 2022 report not only lists Crow's funded private travel, meals and lodging, but the justice also attempts to address prior nondisclosures, including the real estate deal in which Crow bought Thomas's mom's house. Thomas's form says he continues to work with Supreme Court officials and the Judicial Conference Financial Disclosure Committee for guidance on whether he should further amend his reports from prior years. His form further cites personal bank accounts and his spouse's life insurance that were inadvertently omitted from prior reports for the covered period of 2017 through 2021. His spouse, of course, being Jenny Thomas. The justice said bank information was inadvertently omitted in prior years due to a misinterpretation of the rules. A Supreme Court justice misinterpreted financial disclosure rules, but is totally fine Interpreting the Constitution. At the risk of engaging in political blood sport, I might point out that that sort of tough on crime judging practiced by Thomas isn't overly indulgent of rule breaking. In the end, for all the hand wringing from Thomas's backers over scrutiny of his prior nondisclosures, the justice apparently concedes there's some merit to the idea of reviewing his prior behavior and perhaps making amends, even if doing so half heartedly and unconvincingly while continuing to play the victim. Hmm. All right. Well, that is what's going on there. And I wonder how much stuff we don't know about. We'll keep my eye on ProPublica for that information. All right. We're going to be right back with co-founder of Run for Something, Amanda Littman. So stick around. We'll be right back.
1: After these messages, we'll be right back.
0: Hey, everybody. It's AG. I never knew what good sleep and true comfort was until I started using my Helix mattress. It feels like it was crafted to my exact specifications because it was. Now I sleep much better and I wake up refreshed and ready for the day. Just go to helixsleep.com slash take their two minute sleep quiz, and they'll match it to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And you'll get 25% off all mattress orders and two free pillows with code helixpartner25. Helix has a fantastic lineup of 20 different mattresses. There's the award-winning Lux Collection, plus six mattresses from the newly released Elite Collection, which is taking sleeping technology to the next level. They also have mattresses specifically for big and tall folks, and their kids' mattresses won Best Mattress Winner in Parents Magazine. Once you take the two-minute quiz, uh, for, you know, at helixsleep.com dailybeans, and you're matched with your own perfect mattress, it will be delivered right to your door free of charge. You never have to go to a mattress store again, which is a huge relief because they're weird. And Helix runs their own manufacturing facility right here in the United States, and their skilled workers take pride in the quality and comfort of every mattress they make. They sent me the Helix Midnight Mattress because I sleep on my side and I like a medium firm bed. I have never had a better night's sleep, head and shoulders above any other mattress I've ever owned. And to top it all off, there's a 100-night trial and a 10- or 15-year warranty, so you can relax on your brand new mattress stress-free. Helix is offering 25% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners in honor of Labor Day. So go to helixsleep.com slash DailyBeans use code helixpartner25 this is their best offer yet and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now hey everybody welcome back it's time to flip it blue, I'm blue. And joining me today is the co-founder of Run for Something. She also writes at runforsomething.net. Please welcome Amanda Littman. Hi, Amanda. Hi. It is really good to speak to you. The, the amount of work and the things that you've done uh, over the past five or six years have been truly inspiring. And uh, I, I was excited to speak to you today because I know we're gearing up for 2024. Tell me a little bit about what prompted you to sort of create Run for Something and and sort of the, the path that got us to where we are today?
2: Happily. So Run for Something was born of the ashes of the 2016 election. Um, I worked for Hillary um, a bunch of campaigns before that. Uh, about a week after Election Day, I started hearing from friends from college. Hey, Amanda, I'm a public school teacher in Chicago. I'm thinking about running for office. What do I do? You work in politics. You know this world. Tell me where to go. And I didn't have an answer for them, because at the time, if you were young, if you were newly excited about politics and you wanted to do more than vote and then more than volunteer, there was nowhere you could go that would help you. And that to me felt like a problem of not just our party, but our democracy. So I reached out to a whole bunch of folks, one of whom became my co-founder, Ross Morales Riquetto. We wrote a plan and we built a website and we launched a run for something on Trump's inauguration day, thinking this would be a really small project to recruit and support young diverse progressives to run for local office. Uh, We thought we'd get 100 people in the first week. Instead, we got 1,000. And as of today, we've got more than 135,000 young people all across the country who've raised their hands to say they want to run. We've endorsed more than 2,500. And we've helped elect nearly 900 across almost every state, mostly women,
0: mostly people of color, all folks 40 years old and under. That's so amazing. And let's talk about that. The age thing, too, because, you know, I've I've had on my show several times. We've talked to Victor Xi and, you know, just some other leaders in in Gen Z. And, you know, I've heard some really incredible statistics about the demographics of Gen Z. And I, I wanted to ask you about the impact that young people are having, because, I, you know, I remember just after the election in 2016, I think it was the Pod Save fellas where it had mm-hmm. Barack Obama on and they're like, all right, you're the hope guy. Tell us what gives you hope. And he said, the kids right now, because in the next five, 10 years, they're going to be, become voting age and they are going to wash over our country like a wave of hope. And I got chills from that. And we are now seeing that happen. He's, you know, Obama's usually right. Uh, and so I, I think that that's giving everyone in every generation hope. So talk a little bit about the impact of Gen Z on politics.
2: Well, Gen Z are showing up to vote at numbers that, at least in historically compared to, you know, 18 to 24 year olds, 25 year olds of previous generations, at even a higher benchmark than any previous generation. But the thing that gets me really excited is they're also showing up to run for office. Um, we have seen dozens of young people ages 18 to 25 get on the ballot and really advocate for their generation. You know, they're not talking about guns as some ab- abstraction. They're talking about gun safety as kids who have grown up doing school shooting drills since they were in kindergarten. For them, a conversation about housing isn't uh, necessarily even about home ownership. It's about rentals. It's about how to even enter the housing market as a 22-year-old or 24-year-old who's newly doing so. Um, conversations about reproductive health and reproductive justice are intimate and personal and immediate. Conversations about the cost of higher education are from people who are in like immediately taking on tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans. Um, They're showing up, they're running for office in numbers we've never seen before, and they're bringing a really fresh perspective to government um, in a way that I think we've seen already really pays off and makes government better and more responsive to the people.
0: Agreed. And, you know, recently, Vivek Mm -hmm. Ramaswamy has, you know, out of one side of his mouth, he'll talk about how we need young, fresh faces in politics. And out of the other side of his mouth, he wants to raise the voting age to 25. And he's not the only one. And that's not the only way that Republicans are trying to shut down Gen Z, because let's be honest, they are scared of the power of this, gen, the voting power and the running power of this generation. Talk a little bit about the, the, the challenges that uh, run for something and Gen Z and, and you know, all of us in general are facing from the right, from I don't even want to call it the Republican Party anymore. It's not even really a party. So talk talk a little bit about those challenges.
2: Well, the voter suppression laws they've been passing over the last 10 years and beyond are specifically targeted at young people, especially young people of color. You know, things like closing polling locations on campuses or around campuses, um, making early voting really hard to access, making absentee voting or voting by mail really difficult. All of this is in service of keeping young people, transient people out of the voting box. In terms of people running for office, you know, I think this is both a Republican problem, but also a structural problem. Um, these offices are often wildly underpaid if they're paid at all. They are not accessible if you're not already independently wealthy. Um, the gatekeepers who help decide who can and should run for office, you know, outside of run for something and our partners are really looking for folks who can raise a lot of cash quick. That's not necessarily young people, especially not young people of color or young queer people or anyone who doesn't fit the existing mold of what a leader looks like all of this is for them a feature, not a bug of the structure. And it's something we're trying to fix.
0: Yeah. I remember somebody saying, oh, this is a tragedy. These these college students can just roll out of their beds, out of their dorm rooms and go vote like that's a problem. We've seen it time and again. Uh, Republicans know and right wing folks know that when people show up to the polls, they lose. And so that is why I think they're specifically targeting uh, the younger generations and trying to suppress their vote. And and that's not, you know, and along with every other marginalized group, I mean, let's be honest, but trying to roll back our voting rights and our access to the ballot, uh, I think is, is I mean, it's just clear as day. I, it, it boggles my mind that uh, young folks maybe on the right don't see it that way. Like, I wonder if anybody's polled 18 to 24 year olds that are Republicans and be like, what do you think about them not wanting you to vote? And I I often refer to this as like the long shanks problem, because if you remember in Braveheart, he's like, bring out the archers. And the guy's like, sire, won't we hit our own men? And he's like, yes, but we'll hit theirs, too. And like you said, we saw that with trying to stop the mail-in vote in 2020. You know, Donald Trump is out there saying it's rife with fraud. Don't send in your ballots in the mail. They all voted by mail. But then, you know, some top Republican strategists are like, sir, that's how we vote, too. Could you maybe not, you know, <laughs> you know not try to suppress that? It's 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 really mind blowing the way that they're targeting. And, you know, they wouldn't spend all this time and money on this issue if your vote didn't count. So how do you convince young people that their vote matters when so many have been left behind on these issues?
2: we got to give them candidates they're excited to vote for. Um, And we got to show them that when government is responsive to their needs and can deliver for them, um, they will have a reason to care. Um, So I think there's been really great progress. Some of the student loan stuff has been really good, but there's so much more that needs to happen. And I think one of the biggest problems is the stuff that really affects young people the most personally isn't happening on the national level. It happens on the local level. Like Housing is a local issue. Often education is a local issue. At this point, reproductive health is a local issue. All of that um, requires local candidates who are willing to knock doors, talk to voters, be online, be present where young people are. I mean, you've said it quite well. Part of the reason that the right is trying to suppress young people's votes is because (laughs) the right doesn't believe in climate change or gun safety. And wow, that's a really quick way to lose young voters.
0: Yeah. And let's talk about some of those issues that that really hit that generation specifically. You, you've touched on gun safety. You touched on uh, reproductive rights. Uh, but I also want to touch on uh, the climate crisis, because I do know that even aside from uh, local progressive voters, which is where you're focused, even on a national level, so much support from Gen Z for President Biden for his, you know, Inflation Reduction Act, which is poorly named. It should be the climate crisis bill, at least. But Let's talk a little bit about that, because, you know, me at 50, I'm like, okay, well, my time on this earth is on the downside slope. Right. But there are so many years ahead for for young folks so that these issues impact them on such a a visceral level. And like you said, not only because they have so many years ahead of them, but. You know, also because they have been there during those active shooter drills. And now we are seeing, particularly this summer, the climate crisis really hit a tipping point. Talk a little bit about some some of those issues that that you really focus on uh, with with Run for Something.
2: Climate is definitely one of them, especially with passing the Inflation Reduction Act, the, the poorly named or greatly named. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest climate bill in the history of the United States federal government. Um A lot of that money and a lot of that urgency is now moving to state and local governments to actually put into practice. So thinking about uh, reforming electricity grids, uh, energy sources, uh, recycling programs, you know, switching a county or city's vehicle fleet to be electric vehicles. All of that is stuff that's going to be happening on a local level. Um, And we've seen some of the folks we've worked with over the years really Push forward on that already. Um, We're also seeing a lot of young people talk about healthcare. We're seeing young people talk about opioids as they've had friends or family members be directly affected by this crisis. You know, think about the high school athlete that tears their ACL in a lacrosse game and then five years later is addicted to opioids because of it. We're seeing a lot of young people talk about housing again, which I think is one of those issues that disproportionately affects young people even more than it affects older folks. So I'm going to keep hammering at home because I just I can't, you know, bring it in enough and. Candidly, we're seeing young people talk about childcare. You know, think about a lot of folks who, if they're in their early or mid-20s and they're starting families and they're thinking about how they're also going to put their careers forward, putting a kid into childcare, if you're still like at the early stages of your career, can be really, really prohibitively expensive.
0: What is it about this particular generation as opposed to past generations that, that is the motivating factor? Because, you know, I'm Gen X and, you know, we had rock the vote and maybe like nine of us came out to vote. I mean, I was really active, uh, you know, on my college campus, but it is, there is a distinct difference. It, maybe it's the numbers, maybe it's just the sheer numbers, but, you know, do you think it boils down to these issues that that are now coming home to roost, reproductive, Roe's been overturned? You know, we had the benefit of having Roe in place back then, even though, you you know, we've been beating back anti-reproductive uh, health care uh, bullshit for for decades. But do, do you think it's the issues that, that are driving this or or do you think it's something else? Because I have I have not seen such an informed electorate generation before. This is it's truly incredible.
2: And I think people assume that young people are nihilists, that they say nothing matters. There's
0: no point in getting involved. And what oh, that was Gen seen- X, that was that was us. <laughs>
2: you know gen z and millennials too to a certain extent um it's the opposite it's not that nothing matters it's that everything matters it's that this crisis is so urgent and that there is no reason to waste any time doing anything other than immediately solves the crisis and the idea that we would waste any amount of energy on decorum or the way things have been done in the past is like anathema to how this generation understands the political process. I actually find that very comforting. It's it's not that nothing matters. It's that everything matters. And we have a responsibility to take action because if we don't, like we are leaving our families, our kids, our friends, our communities, you know, out to dry.
0: Yeah. And hopefully you learn from the, I guess, the apathy um, of, of previous generations, which is now, you know, at least evident in a lot of these different issues that are, are very important to Gen Z. And I'm not saying all Gen X and millennials and boomers are apathetic, but just looking straight up at the numbers of the when we were at that age, how many of us showed up to vote? And even today, how many of us show up to vote? Uh, it's It's pretty stunning yeah. uh, how how different and how plugged in and how active this generation is talk a little bit um before we go i want to ask you about some of your past successes with with candidates and and what we're looking at now in 2024 who who were some of the candidates that were you know you're really um helping kind of accentuate their their candidacies as we head into this and the next election cycle
2: well good news uh, we have elections coming up in just a couple months uh in 2023 um i think people are already looking ahead to 2024 and i get it the presidential is so exciting it's gonna be a big year but um, the virginia state legislative races are going to be absolutely critical for protecting abortion access it's the last state in the south where um, abortion is uh, legal and uh, if republicans are able to take back the state legislature in full that will no longer be the case so we're working with some amazing candidates in virginia lily franklin um, adele mcclure Nadarius Clark, Danica Rome is running for State Senate, uh, Skylar Van Valkenburg is running for re-election, Phil Hernandez who's running for State Ledge. All of these um, are amazing young people, who, some of whom have run and won, some of whom are running for the first time, who have the opportunity to help protect the values that we care about in Virginia. We're also working with some amazing school board candidates this year and next and we're already doing recruitment for 2024. The first filing deadlines for 2024 will start hitting in December in Texas and we'll keep you know falling sequentially from there. Um, so if you are listening to this and thinking about running, it is not too early to get started and it's definitely not too late to get started. Um, we are here to help you get your campaign up and running.
0: Awesome. And where can people go to find uh, information, support, the organization and support the, the work that you're doing which by the way I, it's just so critical I, there's so many things that have come to pass that I I could credit to not just this generation but run for something as well.
2: Thank you. Uh, if you want to learn more about run for something we're at runforsomething.net we're run for something now on Instagram and threads run for something on the artist formerly known as Twitter um, <laughs> and I'm Amanda Lit on Instagram and threads and Amanda Litman on Twitter.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope you stop back by as we uh, get closer to the Virginia legislature. I mean, that is just such a a narrow, thin margin, like a wafer-thin margin that we have to Mm -hmm. really bulk up. And uh, we have uh, some difficult maps and some difficult things coming up in 2024 as well. So I hope you come back on and join us. I appreciate your time today. Co-founder of Run for Something, head to runforsomething.net, Amanda Lippman. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news? Everyone? Then good news, everyone! <laughs> Good news. news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, baby pictures for Dana, she'll be back Tuesday, frog orgy photos for me. Actually, we both like both. A shout out to a loved one. Shout out to an adoptable pet in your area if you can't pay a pod pet tax. Or a shout out to yourself. I want to hear what you're doing that you're proud of. Um, Whoopie stories, what the mutt, what the hequine, find the cat, whatever you want to send to us. You can do it by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. All right, from Jen, pronouns she and her. Two years ago, I decided to get my MBA while working full-time and taking care of my family. A year ago, I took the step to end my marriage and reclaim my happiness. Today, I'm a divorced MBA graduate with a 3.94 GPA and in a promoted role at work in a great relationship, but most importantly, I am happy. For any Beans listeners who doubt your strength to make uneasy changes, it's like Nelson Mandela said, it always seems impossible until it is done. Jen, high fucking five on that. All of those things, the MBA, the divorce, in a great relationship now. I love this so much in a good role at work. It's like, it's its very, very familiar to me. <laughs> so congratulations. And you're right. It always seems impossible until it's done. Now, Devin, pronouns they and he. Hello, Beans Queens. It's your friendly, non-binary rat lover swinging in with a correction this time. Last week, stated the Nashville shooter was a trans woman. Unfortunately, this is a misconception that was widely spread through news sources due to the reporting officer not understanding the terminology with a side dish of trans masculine invisibility in the media. The shooter was a trans man. He was shown to use a masculine name in his social media profiles as a trans masculine person. It gets really frustrating. that The media pretends that trans women are the only type of trans people that exist. I know you didn't intend to make this error, and I appreciate all the hard work you do to uplift and support the transgender community. Yes, Devin, we were just reading from this story. Thank you for this correction. Uh, Lightening up the end of my submission with some pet tacks, another one of my beloved rats, this little heart thief is Lothric, Pop-Tart box for scale. Seen also, squishing him in that box, is Patches, the best of friends. Oh, big babies. Oh, so cute. Dude, now I want a Pop-Tart. Oh, look how adorable. I look like my rat, Maleficent. Thank you for sending that in, Devin. I really appreciate that correction. And I'm going to actually uh, go find the article I used to source that and let them know as well. All right, next up from Anonymous, pronouns he and him. Greetings, Beans leaders, and welcome to the 91 Felonies Age of Schadenfreude. Last year, I sent a pic of our shaggy white doodle, which the awesome iNaturalist app incorrectly identified as a lion's mane mushroom. <laughs> According to my wife, who took the photo, our dog found Jesus tonight. Oh, <laughs> so great. There's like a, if you, if you can't see this photo, it's this um, adorable dog. But there's like a light, a sunbeam coming in through the window right into the dog's face. Oh, yeah, you just can hear the, the choir singing. <laughs> so wonderful. Thank you for that, Anonymous. Next up from Jake pronouns he and him. I'm a kitchen table listener. First time writing because you put the call out for good news. Thank you, Jake. This is for the comic book nerds out there. I'm a huge comics fan and I made comics and animation for a while before I became an art teacher in New York City. Well, during the pandemic, I called up an old anchor pal who also teaches art and we decided to revive a sci-fi project we were going to collaborate on 20 years ago. I love this. But this time we had the idea of doing it on a podcast where I pencil and he inks in split screen. How cool. We launched the first episode May 2022 and have met weekly for an hour to draw and ink as we chat about the details of the story and the art and the larger world of comics. The podcast now has over 70 episodes online. And we also started a second series called Comics That Influence, where we gush over the cool comics and artists that inspire us. So the good news is we recently completed our first six-page sampler and now have something printed and available to promote the project, which will eventually become a comic and then a full graphic novel when it's all done. We have also realized that we seem to be the first and only ones making a comic live on a podcast and would love to see others do the same. The comic is called Turbo Pit Fighter, and it's about a strong female in a dystopian 23rd century after a multi-trillionaire family conquered the government and obliterated all the big cities. That sounds eerily possible. Um, Haunted by specters from her past, quote, a rare mutation takes Turbo immune to the radioactive contamination, growing into a fiercely pumped scrapper who survives the post-apocalyptic wasteland one deathmatch pit fight at a time. But when a rigged match turns into a deadly siege, Turbo rescues the stunning trophy girl and the unlikely duo make a harrowing escape, evading marauding berserkers at every turn on their way to the ultimate showdown as they uncover the horrific truth behind the fall of humanity awesome this is a cover art would be happy to send you the mini comic if you like this is amazing art now i also want to know where to find your podcast jake maybe do we just look for do we just look for turbo pit fighter or does the podcast have a name send that to us uh, because i I want to watch that this art is incredible Love this. All right, next up from Lily and G, pronouns she and her. Years ago, my brother brought my beautiful sister-in-law into our family, and she and I became friends. Listening to music one day, a Yes song came on, and she sang to the lyrics, "In and around the lake, mallards come out of the sky, and they stand there." I'm a duck lover, and the visual of these lyrics conjure is just so charming. And now I can't remember what the actual lyrics were. <laughs> I was waiting for you to tell me, Lillian, because I don't know either. Does anybody know what this could be? In and around the lake, mallards come out of the sky and they stand there. Anybody, send it in to us. Dailybeanspod.com. Click on contact. What is that? What is the actual song? Next up from Penny, pronouns she and her. And Mark. Dear Beans Queens from sunny Canberra, Australia. I hope I'm saying that right. Thank you so much for all the Beans team for all you do. Keeping us newsed and enthused. I love it. Newsed and enthused. I'm writing that down perfect. This is some shit Australians say. Two bits of idiom from Australia for you. One, no wuckers. You may know uh, Australians say no worries, which roughly means that's okay, or all fine, or you're welcome. I say no worries all the time. That's like my go-to. No worries, or don't think twice. Naturally, it gets embellished and turned into no fucking worries, and then spoonerized into no wucking forays, and then shortened to no wuckers. (laughs) Naturally, no walkers. Uh, also, cunding futz. I have an idea. Uh, boy, this one's simple and fabulous. It's just funding cuts, spoonerized. But I love the way it sounds sweary and actually isn't. For Bod pet tax, I offer this picture of our beloved bunny, Nate. He's a healthy eight and a half year old. That's like a mid nineties person in years, about nine pounds, but small for his breed who used to be black and is now a distinguished charcoal color. He's a Flemish giant. Oh, I love Flemish giants. He loves pets, carrot peelings, and the enrichment toys my lovely husband Mark makes for him uh, from used boxes and his treat pellets. We should have called him Argon for he is both noble and inert. (laughs) Good, good. Anywho, thanks for keeping us alert and up to date. And may these idioms sustain you. I love this. We haven't gotten new idioms in a while. No wuckers and cunding futs. Look at this flemish giant. He's beautiful. Hi, big ears. Hi, baby. So I guess they lighten up over time, huh? So cute. And so last week we were given a bit of a puzzle by a listener named Jane. She named the hummingbirds that came to her feeder the acronyms B-O-Q and T-E-W-Y. And Dana and I did not get it. But shout out to Kim B., Alice S., and a couple of anonymous submissions for getting it correct. Stick around for the sign-off for the answer, because it dawned on us after this was pointed out to us, and it's just so obvious that BOQ is blue over Q, and TEWI is take everyone with you, so... Let's get to that. I'll be back tomorrow to bring you more news. God knows what's going to happen. Fuck it tomorrow in the news. My Jesus. It's just coming a mile a minute now, but at least it's good news. It's not a a fire hose of shit anymore. It's not scandal after scandal after horrible thing after horrible thing. It's justice. So I'll be here tomorrow to report it to you. Dana will be back on Tuesday. Until then, uh, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and take everyone with you. I'm an A.G.,